The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Art Basel Hong Kong bounces back. The censorship of art online and Brenda L. Croft's portraits of First Nations women in Australia. After cancellations, delays and two years of restricted fairs, Art Basel Hong Kong has returned to something like pre-COVID normality. So, as other Asian art centres like Seoul and Singapore become increasingly influential, what's the atmosphere like in Hong Kong? Gareth Harris, Chief Contributing Editor at the Art Newspaper, joins me to discuss the fair, the M Plus Museum and more. It's becoming increasingly clear that social media corporations have become self-appointed cultural gatekeepers that decide which works of art can freely circulate, be pushed into the digital margins or even banned. Our live editor, Amy Dawson, talks to the artist Emma Shapiro and Elizabeth Larrison, the director of the Arts and Culture Advocacy Programme at the National Coalition Against Censorship, about a project to counter this tendency called Don't Delete Art. And this episode's work of the week is Narbami, Thou Shall, Will See, Barangaroo, Army of Me, a photographic project by Brenda L. Croft in which she depicts fellow First Nations women in Australia. The work is part of the National Four Australian Art Now, a survey across multiple venues in Sydney which opens today. One of the show's curators, Beatrice Grulton, tells us about Croft's epic series. Don't forget you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, which returns next week and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, Art Basel Hong Kong fully reopened for the first time in four years this week. It's the first fair to be held at the convention centre since China and Hong Kong lifted all COVID-19 lockdown restrictions at the end of last year, and the largest fair since 2019, following cancellations, delays and restrictions in the 2021 and 2022 editions. Gareth Harris has been in Hong Kong this week, and I spoke to him about the fair and other art events in the city-state. Gareth, Art Basel Hong Kong was actually the first fair affected by COVID and then continued to be affected by COVID over the subsequent years. Is this the first fair where it feels like it's back to normal, as it were? Yeah, without a doubt, actually. I think the excitement at the fair and around the fair in the city has been palpable. I've attended a press conference yesterday with Noah Horowitz, who's the new global director. And, you know, in front of a a mass of international journalists and VIPs. He said he was thrilled to be welcoming a truly international audience for the first time in years. And I have to say that I think people seemed genuinely excited to be here, from collectors to curators. The halls were both packed out yesterday during the VIP preview. So yeah, it's back with a bang. So it feels in a way like freeze felt in 2021 or something like that first time that people are back in the same space at the same time. Because of course, the COVID restrictions took a lot longer to be lifted in different parts of Asia and Hong Kong included. Yeah, this is the first edition to be held at the convention centre here in Hong Kong since China lifted all the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. And yeah, I think you can sort of safely say they had one of the most sort of draconian pandemic regimes in the world, to be honest. I mean, when you go into the streets here, people are still wearing masks generally. Mm. I took the metro yesterday and nearly everyone was wearing a mask. So I Mm. think that Hong Kong still definitely hasn't emerged from COVID, but the restrictions have now gone. I had to show a photo of of my negative COVID test at the airport, but merely a photo, which is strange. Could be anyone's photo, but let's not go down that road. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think it, it feels like that they're finally emerging from the pandemic. And as I keep saying that, that's palpable. So the scale of the fair... Just to be clear, it was at 242 galleries in 2019, and it's now 177. So it's not quite back to pre-COVID levels. Is that right? That's right. So I think the stats are fairly healthy. There's 177 galleries taking part this year. That's quite a leap up from the 130 exhibitors in 2022. There are 22 newcomer galleries, places such as Gallery Vacancy from Shanghai, Whistle Gallery from Seoul, 
we were sort of given a blizzard of stats during the press <laughs> conference, which is usually the way with PR people. <laughs> I thought it was fairly interesting, actually. For example, they also pointed out that 42 dealers are returning after the COVID hiatus, people mm-hmm. like Tadeus Ropak and Sadie Coles. So I think that's a pretty fairly healthy indication that you know people want to be here as well. You said it was buzzy. Did you get any sense talking to dealers about sales, about the collectors that were coming? What I found particularly interesting was that I think the fair has really boosted its presence in Asia in every way, in the sense that I noticed, for example, there were many, many Japanese collectors, uh, many Korean collectors. And I think this is an interesting kind of pivot because the fair's owners, the MCH group, I mean, I think you might have discussed this before, Ben, but mm. they've started partnering with other events and projects in Asia in a bid to, I suppose, consolidate Art Basel Hong Kong's status as, as a kind of bridging market hub. You know, last year, MCH made a, I think it was a 15% investment in Singapore's new international outfit, RTSG. And to my mind, this kind of nurturing of pan-Asian partnerships is kind of paying off. I spoke to a very established Japanese dealer, Takaishi from Tokyo, and he said there are so many Japanese collectors here, especially younger ones. So I think that's kind of an interesting development. I'm not so sure there were that many Americans on the fair floor. Right. Some yeah. Europeans, some sales to European collectors. But to my mind, it seems to be a very important fair in the region. It's really interesting that, isn't it? Because one of the things that we talked about on this podcast is, is the art world pushing towards other Asian centres to be the kind of new central hub? But actually, it's really interesting, isn't it, that MCH's sort of strategy of partnering with Tokyo Art Week, partnering with ArtSG, seems to be about consolidating Hong Kong as opposed to finding new centres for their business, as it were. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think I'm not sure many fair organisers would want their fair to be called a key regional fair. Perhaps pre-COVID, the bigger fairs would aspire to being called or labelled international fairs as such. But I think you have to start somewhere post-pandemic. And it's interesting, I was speaking to a, a, an anonymous dealer who is thinking of rejoining the fair. And I said to her, would you go for Hong Kong or Singapore or Seoul? And they said that they feel Hong Kong is still the most important market hub in the region. And I said about the regional fair aspect, and she said, as I've just said, you have to start somewhere. So I think post-COVID, perhaps it's a kind of canny strategy on the part of our Basel Hong Kong. I suppose galleries are also more picky, aren't they, now? They're not doing so many fairs. You have to decide where your key Asian marketplace might be. From what I've seen this week, after all the talk of... Hong Kong's decline, or possible decline, I think it's certainly back in the game. Absolutely. So I, it's, it's, it's fascinating how people have speculated with the rise of Singapore and Seoul, but I'm not so sure we should write off Hong Kong. <laughs> no, obviously we again have dealt on this podcast with the kind of human rights issues and, and whether the art world was going to pay attention to it. We've seen you know, artists moving out of Hong Kong in droves, but it doesn't seem to affect the market. The market seems squarely focused on it and it does have all these tax advantages and so on and that seems to be the driving factor. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I think the city has changed. A Chinese journalist who preferred to remain anonymous said... You know, this is not the Hong Kong of 2018. <laughs> I think that's a really important a phrase, actually, because we have to keep in mind things like the national security law, which was implemented mid-2020 by the Chinese government, which criminalizes any act of so-called subversion, terrorism. And I did say to Angel Xiangli, who's the fair's new director, I asked her about the security law, and she told me that, you know, the business has not been impacted so far by the law, and she said we're trying to monitor the situation constantly. So at some of the press conferences, there have been the odd questions about censorship, which is still interesting. Again, the fair organisers insisted there had been no censorship at all, nobody's meddled with the fair uh, and works that have been brought. So it's kind of underpinning things here. It's not dominating the conversation, I have to say, because people are happy to be back. But it's a changed city. I think we have to be aware of those political developments. And I'm not always sure where you draw the red line, to be honest, but we always have that dilemma. 
Absolutely. Let's talk about the wider city because M Plus is obviously a big recent addition to the cultural uh, experience of Hong Kong. You've been, what did you think? I think, to use the cliche, and I've heard it many times this week, M Plus is a, is a game changer. I really do. For many, many years since I've attended Art Basel Hong Kong, I would roll along to the press conferences at, at the site and see a hole in the ground and <laughs> secretly despair that nothing was happening because it did take a, it took forever to build didn't it, it take forever <laughs> and we had so many press tours but we were taken there this week we must keep in mind that m plus opened in november 2021 yeah but of course this is deep into the pandemic there were no international visitors as such so i think the museum chiefs now think that they can have their curtain call this week and, you know, it's it's good marketing. We've all been shipped over there. And we went over to see the Yeoi Kusama retrospective. We went to see a fantastic exhibition of works from Uli Sig's collection, Swiss collector who, mm-hmm. who I think has handed over more than 1,500 Chinese contemporary works. So, yeah, you walk into the main foyer and there's a, a kind of lower ground floor with Kusama's works there. And the, and the main galleries are on the top floor. And the galleries are vast, and I have to say it feels spacious and welcoming, and the, the exhibitions are, are superb. It's a bit of a brutalist palace. It's a sort of landmark Herzog and de Meuron building. You know, they are really now a hugely established practice in terms of exhibition spaces totally. and museums. So do you feel that effect of all that learning, if you like, that Herzog and de Meuron have built up over those years? Now? Yeah, and there, there was a, a kind of star-studded uh, reception earlier this week because I think the architects were in town to see parts of the building they might not have seen because they can't travel or they couldn't travel. So it felt like a real fanfare for them as well. And as I said, there was a pretty illustrious press reception for them on Monday. I mean, it's a bit of a concrete palace. When I first went into the main entrance and peered down into the kind of lower ground floor to see the Kusama pieces displayed there, to me, that opening kind of reception, it felt a little too busy. But then when you go up into the main galleries upstairs and... It splits very clearly into the Uli Sig show, into the Kusama show, into a historical sort of Chinese art show. It all makes complete sense. And I must say, it sort of makes something like Tate Modern look a little bit tired. <laughs> In terms of a global rival, it'll be interesting to see how things pan out on, on the world stage for M+. But it does make the city much more attractive. If we're talking about cultural offerings, I think it puts Hong Kong up there really now with other world cities. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the thing. Hong Kong needed a kind of museum to deliver on this international promise of being a contemporary art centre in the sense that, yes, you've got Art Basel, it is a market centre, indisputably, but this is about establishing a, a sort of cultural space for people of a much broader nature, not just the art world. Totally, and, I, you know, this is all centred around an area called the West Kowloon Cultural District. So you sort of have to travel to the other side of the harbour. I'm sort of based in Central District at the moment, but it's a taxi ride, mm. I don't know, 10, 15 minutes without traffic, and metro is very easy. And the Hong Kong government has pumped money into that cultural district quite rightly, I think, you know, because it's not just M+. We were also shown the Hong Kong Palace Museum earlier this week. Which is where there's this National Gallery exhibition. Yeah, yeah. Um, later. yeah. It's more historic work there, and... They have a fantastic show of works from the Palace Museum in Beijing, some fantastic ceramic pieces. And as you just mentioned, they announced unexpectedly they, they're going to be welcoming a National Gallery exhibition of masterpieces, National Gallery London, yeah. which is currently in Shanghai, actually. And it, you know, it's going to be works by Botticelli, Raphael, Titian. Perhaps interesting that the National Gallery is doing that tour, no doubt, while they're undertaking a refurbishment. But yeah, that announcement came as a little bit of a surprise. So the show is in Shanghai, it's going to Korea next, and then it comes to the Hong Kong Palace Museum. But again, I think that's probably indicates the kind of calibre of the kind of museum district here, that the National Gallery feels comfortable sending its masterpieces to that venue. Indeed. So yeah, it's the West Kowloon Cultural District. I think it's been over 20 years in the planning, and it's starting to pay dividends now. Absolutely. Now, I know that you wanted to talk about an exhibition that you've seen in town, which you particularly enjoyed. There is 
an outstanding show at the Taikun space, which is a, a contemporary space in the middle in the middle of town. And it's called Mythmakers. It's the third instalment of the Sun Pride Foundation Spectrosynthesis Exhibition Series on LGBTQ plus Asian art. And before I arrived, I read a report by our correspondent here, Lisa Mobius, in the art newspaper about the show, and was completely intrigued because we've just discussed the issue of censorship and draconian government measures here to a degree and I'm, I was fascinated you know how can Hong Kong host such such a progressive LGBTQ plus show uh, so I went along earlier this week and it's just brilliant I have to say there are works there by artists I'm just not aware of pioneering gay Asian artists who obviously deserve this platform historical and contemporary right it's quite a sweeping timeline that, that's featured in the show yeah it sort of spans from the 1940s to today the first section is called queer mythologies on and off the stage and it's got more historical figures in it like alfonso osorio a filipino u.s artist i wasn't aware of bupan kaka of india it begins and ends with works by an artist called ellen pao who's been active in the Hong Kong art scene since the 1980s and her opening work is called Song of the Goddess and Lisa wrote at the time it depicts the intimate relationship on and off screen between opera actresses Yan Kim Fei and Pak Suet Sin in the 1960s. We had a curator talk with the curators of Chantal Wong and Iti Guero and they explained it's one of Hong Kong's earlier examples where viewers collectively accepted identification with a same-sex love story because these singers were part of a Cantonese opera broadcast, which I understand was shown generally on television. And so these people were being beamed into people's homes across China. I find that really interesting. Indeed. That this subliminal acceptance of a lesbian relationship was transmitted into Chinese homes. I found that really interesting. And all credit to Hong Kong businessman Patrick Sun, who established the Sun Pride Foundation in 2014 to, to collect and promote LGBTQ plus Asian art. There's also activism and, you know, the politics as well involved, isn't there? Because there's a section about the struggles, if you like, of LGBTQ people in there. Yeah, there's a second section called Body Politics, Criminalisation, Control and Counter-Narratives. And there's an amazing film in there by an artist called Joseph Eng. And the film shows his 1994 performance, Brother Kane. And it was a kind of protest piece in response to, I think, a number of men arrested for cruising in Singapore. In the film, it shows him cutting his pubic hair, scattering the hair. And this caused such a stir, Singapore banned performance art for, I think, around a decade. I think people have forgotten those kind of things <laughs> mm. in Asian LGBTQ history and to remind visitors of such bravery I think it's pretty outstanding to be honest Gareth thank you so much for talking to us thank you Art Basel Hong Kong continues until tomorrow, 25th of March. You can read Gareth's report on the fair at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, the battle against online censorship of art and Brenda L. Croft's photographic series depicting First Nations women. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. A new report claims that the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has more than 1,000 objects in its collection that have ties to people allegedly involved in crimes related to the antiquities trade. The report, by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and other media outlets, says that at least 1,109 pieces in the Met's collection were previously owned by individuals who have been indicted or convicted of crimes including looting and trafficking. Of those objects, fewer than half have records available that detail how they left their countries of origin. The Met told the art newspaper that collecting standards have changed in recent decades, the field has evolved and the Met has been a leader in this progress, making many recent returns at the museum's own initiative. 
In a landmark case, a New York court has dismissed a lawsuit over the ownership of the so-called world's first NFT. Quantum was minted by Kevin McCoy in May of 2014, before the Ethereum blockchain had launched or the term NFT, or non-fungible token, was even introduced. The NFT was then sold at Sotheby's for $1.5 million in June 2021. Last February, both McCoy and the auction house were sued by a Canadian company called Free Holdings, which claimed to be the rightful owner of Quantum. It had created a new NFT ahead of the Sotheby's sale using the same namespace that McCoy had used in 2014 and duplicating his original metadata. James Cott, a magistrate judge for the US District Court for the Southern District of New York, found that Freeholdings demonstrated nothing more than an attempt to exploit open questions of ownership in the still-developing NFT field to lay claim to the profits of a legitimate artist. And finally, in the latest high-level museum departure in Russia, Marina Loshak has resigned as the director of Moscow's Pushkin State Museum of Fine Arts. The news follows the replacement of Zelfira Cherkilova, former director of the State Trechikov Gallery, with Elena Pronacheva, the daughter of a former head of the Federal Security Service associated with the Russian president Vladimir Putin. Loshak's daughter and nephew are both opposition journalists who left Russia after the invasion of Ukraine and have been labelled foreign agents by the Russian Ministry of Justice. Loshak who's directed the museum since 2013, has been replaced by Elizaveta Likacheva, the current director of Moscow's Shushev State Museum of Architecture. You can keep up to date with all these stories and more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This spring, Christie's presents two online-only auctions of iconic collections, ideal for every collector. Discover 400 years of sculptural silver and works of art from the Orange Blossom Collection for treasures ranging from a life-size Italian silver palm tree to 24-karat gold rabbits with jewelled eyes. Explore more in the incredible rediscovery of Susie Zuzek, the artist behind Lily Pulitzer, which showcases original watercolours and paintings that define the American fashion brand. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, social media companies are increasingly deciding what art you can see online and even banning some material. But artists are fighting back. Don't Delete Art is a collaboration between the National Coalition Against Censorship, Artists at Risk Connection, Free Muse and the artist activists Savannah Spirit, Spencer Tunick and Emma Shapiro. The campaign seeks greater protection of art on social media. Our live editor, Amy Dawson, spoke to Emma Shapiro and Elizabeth Larrison, the director of the Arts and Culture Advocacy Programme, at the National Coalition Against Censorship about the project. Today we're talking about art censorship online and we've long been aware of censorship, art or otherwise, in kind of like non-democratic countries. You hear about censorship in China or Cuba and increasingly in so-called democratic countries like Russia, for example. But countries with bad records for freedom of speech are no longer the only countries that we're seeing art censorship in. So more and more we hear about backlashes in liberal democracies like the UK and America, for example, as a result of so-called wokeness or very sensitive issues like racial and gender equality. And we spoke about the rise of art censorship on a previous podcast with the art newspaper's chief contributing editor, Gareth Harris, who actually released a book at the end of 2022 titled Censored Art Today. And he is now going to be writing a regular blog for us on our website on the subject called Trigger Warning. So I think it's fair to say that art censorship is on the rise globally. Would you agree, Emma? Yes, uh, Amy, I would absolutely agree. And Free News's 2022 report definitively showed that art censorship is on the rise in many different countries because of many different things, including digital censorship of art. And yes, Gareth Harris, I reference his book quite a bit, and I really appreciate the work that he's done to bring this to the attention of the art community through the art newspaper and his writing. It is something that we have witnessed for a long time, those of us in social media space. It's something that we've felt for a long time with the Don't Delete Art campaign. We've been able to reach out to a lot of artists who are experiencing this and a lot of different levels. And also just speaking from my work with the National Coalition Against Censorship, we receive reports of artists being bullied or receiving other types of requests or restrictions on their work all of the time, even after it's been accepted in various contexts and formats. So 
there are many reasons which are the root cause of that, one of which, as you mentioned, is sort of like these increasingly polarized expectations and also inabilities to feel comfortable talking about controversy in art. And we'll speak more about the Don't Delete Art project in a bit. Obviously, you're both involved in that. But first, let's talk about how important social media is as a place for artists. It's one of the most contested grounds upon which censorship is growing. It, it kind of festers in social media more than anywhere else. But social media is such an important platform for artists to market themselves, to reach a global audience, to establish their practice, to kind of also sidestep what some people may find as quite restrictive art market mechanisms like having to have gallery representation or attend fairs or things like that. So how is this censorship on social media platforms like Instagram, for example, really affecting artists today? Basically, I see it as like there once was a dream that was Instagram and so many artists turned to it as a way to, yes, sidestep the traditional path of uh, getting a master's or getting into the right gallery or living in the right city. And that seemed to work for a period of time, or at least it seemed so. And it definitely has connected artists all over the world. It connects artists to opportunities to exhibit their work, to share their work, to create new work, to communicate. It's an incredibly, incredibly important tool. And according to the 2021 Artsy report. They said that social media rivaled art fairs as the third most important way for art and artists to succeed and be seen, which is a very, very big deal. So any artist is going to tell you that social media is incredibly important to their reach and to their practice, but content moderation that comes into play and excludes certain artists, certain artworks, it means that those artists don't have access to this incredibly and increasingly important tool. So it leads to the question, what artwork do we actually get to see and whose voices are we actually hearing? It skews the playing field in quite a big way that has not quite been recognized publicly by art institutions and by the art community at large. And this is something that is affecting particularly the most marginalized artists already, LGBTQIA artists, disabled artists, and women artists. And through things like, for example, the notorious nipple ban that is present on many social media platforms, and especially famously on Meta's Instagram, what we see most through the Don't Delete Art campaign, for example, most artists are dealing with suppression and censorship of their work on that platform because it's an image sharing platform makes sense so the things like the nipple ban or uh accusing artists of sexual solicitation those things are going to particularly affect artwork that's made about women by women which means we're not going to be seeing a, a changing of the way the patriarchal art system works if we're not allowed to see that artwork at all Let's talk about the kinds of works that are being censored. Obviously, you mentioned the nipple ban. The thing about the so-called nipple ban is that it means that male nipples are not censored, but female nipples are, which is obviously a really bizarre kind of place where we're drawing a line here. But what other kinds of censorship are we seeing about? Oftentimes, I think we're seeing that the algorithms which are often used by these social media companies don't know how to read images in context. So works that might be making commentary on geopolitical affairs might be perceived as terrorism, for example. Works that speak in some ways to pharmacology and culture or something like that might be misinterpreted as supporting drug trafficking. Images that are like taken of children by their parents who are happen to be photographers professionally and used their children in their work professionally might be misinterpreted as um, child trafficking. So it affects far more content and artwork than just when nudes or adult nipples appear. I think it's also important to acknowledge that even though we generally support and recognize the need for social media companies to have content moderation, it's important to recognize that that content moderation is not exercised always fairly and the social media companies often don't even 
exercise or adhere to their own rules that they have in place because they need more human review. They can't rely on algorithms to simply assess the content of an image based off of the inputs that have created that algorithm in the first place. Yes, I think it's worth saying that in its guidelines, Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, says that imagery of nudity and artwork is permitted on the platform. And, you know, lots of different kinds of imagery as artworks are allowed. But it's these kind of, as you say, content moderation mechanisms that are making these works get caught in the system and therefore censored. So we're talking about content moderation and you were saying that a lot of it is done by algorithms. Let's talk a bit more about how exactly this process is working on Facebook and Instagram at the moment. From what I understand, it's it's, it's like a black box. You know, there are times when by necessity of the volume of content that goes through social media, there is a need to rely on technology, on algorithms to screen images. And from my understanding, human review is reserved for later stages that might require greater scrutiny or additional ways to read those images. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, from people that I've spoken to who are close to, say, the Oversight Board, I mean, the implementation of the Oversight Board as sort of this external force that helps Meta to make better decisions in the future, potentially, or to particularly spotlight humanitarian issues and global issues and come up with constructive criticism of how Meta can move forward to center human rights. These are all great steps forward. The people who are involved with the oversight board seem to be taking it with all seriousness. The people who are close to the oversight board that I've spoken to have repeatedly referred to the fact that there just isn't enough manpower for there to be the kind of nuance that we deserve as artists on a platform like this. So there has to be a companionship between AI and human moderation. Moderators need to be trained especially well to be able to understand the difference between sexual solicitation and artwork, especially photography work, and artificial intelligence, where that's employed, that needs to be having the correct uh, learning structure for it to be able to not just rely on historical basis of viewing imagery that has constantly been built by white male perspectives. I think part of the problem here that's quite apparent from when we're trying to talk about how this process works is it is not clear. We as users of these platforms are not invited to fully understand or know how the process of content moderation works. And so when you do have a work or image that you post online kind of taken down and you get these terrifying messages that say you've crossed the guidelines and you know, you're in breach of certain rules and you may lose your entire account if you don't now follow these rules that you don't fully understand is part of the problem. And to my knowledge, Facebook and Instagram are incredibly difficult to contact when you want to bring your account back online or if you want to refute these claims of inappropriate imagery. And when users or activists have tried to have conversations with these massive social media platforms, they're not very forthcoming in having open discussions about the problems. Yeah, the black box aspect of it, the inability to communicate with them is just an ongoing problem. It has barely gotten better. I mean, they have instituted the appeals process as well as the appeal to the oversight board process when content is removed sometimes, which does allow users better than before an opportunity to maybe get their artwork reviewed or their images reviewed to be able to be reposted. But still, that isn't you communicating with somebody within the structure, being able to defend the imagery that has been removed from the platform. I mean, as an artist who has had my account taken down in the past, the only way for me to get it back up has been for me to somehow know somebody who has a contact within meta, which is insane. You know, I mean, the bottleneck of that is impossible. And I've known plenty of artist activists who have been able to become that middle person to be able to try to help other artists. 
and they just get overwhelmed. So that's, that is not a sustainable operation. And these companies, you know, are meant to be part of working democracies and their systems within them are so authoritarian. It's, it's alarming. So let's move on to talk about Don't Delete Up, which you are both a part of and the coalition that's behind it. And of course, too, about the work that America's National Coalition Against Censorship does. I can start with a little bit about Don't Delete Art. Um, it was founded in 2020. It was uh, convened by the National Coalition Against Censorship, which had been, along with other artists and activists, recognizing the ways in which art was being suppressed on social media and how it wasn't being addressed quickly enough. So convening different human rights organizations, digital rights organizations, arts collectors, and importantly, artists, activists who are in many ways on the front lines dealing with this directly. We brought DDA together. It's important that DDA is a collaboration across organizations and individual artists and activists because we each bring our own resources, strengths, and knowledge uh, to address this issue. It's clear that with all of the billions of users on the biggest social media companies, no singular group or entity is going to be able to effectively speak to this, which is why it's important that we come together and so in the months before DDA was founded, um, the NCAC was involved with a protest with the artist Spencer Tunick. We convened a protest artwork outside of Meta's headquarters in, in Manhattan that had many nude people who were basically being convened together to create an artwork in protesting of Meta's policies about the nipple, which, as you mentioned, restricts women's nipples or female appearing nipples from appearing except for in extremely specific circumstances, whether it's breastfeeding or post-mastectomy surgeries or in protests, right? And so following this protest um, in Manhattan, we were able to get a meeting with Facebook. And I think that was among one of the first meetings that we were able to have with multiple artists coming together to speak with Facebook about these terms. However, while that felt like a win in many ways, it was so clear that this work needed to be an ongoing effort, which is why we moved to create DDA. So today, Don't Delete Art is composed of a website where we document and we take submissions of work which has been censored on social media. We invite people, if they have ever had a post um, suppressed or taken down, that they share that story with us. Because even if social media companies are recording this data and trying to analyze and understand the ways in which artistic suppression is maybe incorrectly happening, they're not sharing it with us. It doesn't benefit them to always make public all of this information. So it's in a way on the community to document it. So that's what DDA is doing. Um, so please, if you've ever experienced any censorship of your artwork on social media, we want to hear about it so we can understand the problem and better learn to advocate ways in which we can um, address it. The Don't Delete Art website also has a tips page in which we offer suggestions based off of the current content moderation rules of how to deal with getting your artwork online, even if it requires self-censorship in some ways. And we also have a blog and a newsletter, which Emma runs with our other collaborator, Savannah Spirit, which documents various trends that are happening, changes that are happening in the field that affect access to art on social media. And the Don't Delete Art Project recently launched a manifesto, which is kind of a culmination of these frustrations, but also hopes for change and giving a push to institutions that work with artists to campaign against these social media platforms to, to create better content moderation and, and things like that for artists posting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the manifesto and how many signatures you've received so far? So since launching the manifesto, we have more than 1,200 signatures from artists, some organizations, art workers, people who have been affected by this issue. And it has mostly grown at this point through personal outreach and thanks to an article from the art newspaper that shouted out the manifesto as well. And we have plans to implement in the future to make a bigger splash with the manifesto to get institutions to sign on because the intention with the manifesto is at least twofold. One of which, as you mentioned, is to get institutions to recognize and, and be vocal about the fact that they need to be supporting and standing up for artists who are facing suppression and censorship on social media. That social media is not just a frivolous concern. It is a very serious concern that is affecting the livelihoods and success of artists and especially 
of marginalized artists. That's one of the major important things with the manifesto. But we are also trying to achieve a seat at the table of social media companies for artists to have input into content moderation practices and how algorithms work. Artists deserve to have their voices heard on a regular basis. As Elizabeth mentioned, getting that meeting with Instagram to be able to speak on this issue was a fantastic achievement, but it is something that needs to be ongoing in order for artists' freedom of expression to be protected as the landscape of legal regulation of online spaces is expanding between the United States introducing FOSTA-SESTA a few years ago and other regulations that are going to go into effect, the EU, as well as the UK's online safety bill. There's a lot of concerns about the chilling aspect that regulations will have on social media platforms, and somebody has to advocate for the artists who are already on the chopping block. So artists and art institutions need to be able to have their voices heard and to speak out for the art community that's being affected. Thank you so much for joining me and I hope that many more join your cause and we see a much freer social media for the art world in the coming years. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can read more about Don't Delete Art's manifesto on Amy's monthly blog about art and social media called Instagratification on the website or the app. And Don't Delete Art's website is don'tdelete.art. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Today, the exhibition The National Four Australian Art Now opens in Sydney. It's organised by different curators at four venues. Emily Rolfe at Campbelltown Arts Centre, Freya Carmichael and Arna Fitzgerald Hanley at Carriage Works, Jane Devery at the Museum of Contemporary Art Australia and Beatrice Goulton at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I spoke to Beatrice about one of the key works in the presentation at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, a series of photographs depicting First Nations women by Brenda L. Croft, called Narbami, Thou Shall, Will See, Barangaroo, Army of Me. Beatrice, tell us first about Brenda Croft. Brenda is a very important practitioner um, in the contemporary Australian landscape of art. She's a First Nations woman from the Gurindji, Madra, Malangan peoples from the Fitzmaurice region of the Northern Territory here in Australia. And she also has um, Anglo, Australian, German, Irish and Chinese heritage. But, I mean, really what's so critical about Brenda is that she's been at the forefront of Australian First Nations and broader contemporary arts and cultural sectors practice for, you know, a long time, for over three, four decades as an artist, an arts administrator, researcher, curator and educator. I've known Brenda now for about just over 20 years and have watched and listened and learned a lot from her over that time. Right. And it seems to me just from reading about her, that that sort of practice of communicating about whilst also making art about issues relating to First Nations people, she's absolutely an activist at the same time as an artist, as a curator, etc. Absolutely. 100%. 110% even. <laughs> you know, Brenda moved to Sydney after studying at Canberra School of Art in the early 80s. And she was one of a, of a core group of artists, including... Tracy Moffat, Hetty Perkins, Michael Riley, key First Nations practitioners in this country who set up the Bumali Collective in the city of Sydney, which was the one of the first sort of Aboriginal-run galleries and, and collectives. And it was that group of practitioners who then went on to do some remarkable things over the next 20 or 30 years. So her, her practice really is grounded in, in activism and connections, I think, with uh, her community and with the people of this country. And it's difficult to summarize now how difficult it was in those early years of the Bumali Collective, isn't it? Because there is now a welcoming approach from museums across Australia, from cultural platforms and so on. Then it was really fighting against a system to a certain degree. Yeah, absolutely. And it was about establishing agency and voices and saying, we're here and we know things and we're good at this and you need to listen to us, you know. And it was a very kind of powerful moment in, I think, Australian history. Um, And the images that Brenda and her colleagues and fellow kind of artists and curators made and the exhibitions they made from around that period, the 80s and into the 90s, were completely formative and changed the way that Australian art was seen overseas and also how it was seen in our own country. And that's really defined the last three decades of practice. 
Now, in the National Four, it seems to me you've got a project by Brenda which is so emblematic of so much of what we've just been talking about. It's an extraordinary project which has extended beyond the National Four. But tell us about what you're showing. Yeah, it's an epic project, actually. And it's a project that I think has been in Brenda's mind for a really long time. And she really started working on it in earnest around 20. 17, 18, um, and it started to sort of take legs after that. But what you'll see at the Art Gallery of New South Wales are these beautiful portraits. There's 45 of these portraits of, of First Nations women. It's an army of women that are located in the Art Gallery's historic building. And, you know, it's a very imposing, very beautiful building. But the idea of this location is that you have to see these women, this army, in a way that you can't move forward or, or go backwards until you've done that. And of course, the term army is literally in the title, isn't it? So mm-hmm. it's Barangaroo Army of Me. So tell us about Barangaroo and the significance of this extraordinary woman. Yeah, Barangaroo is a really fascinating woman in, in our history. She was renowned for her mastery as a fisherwoman and her staunch sort of non-negotiable attitude towards the colonisers. She was born roughly around 1750 and she lived until about 1791, dying shortly after giving birth to her daughter. And she was the second wife of a very well-known Wongol man whose name, Benelong, is now memorialised by Benelong Point, of course, which is the site of the Sydney Opera House. But less is known about Barangaroo. Her people were the custodians of North Head and, and Manly in Sydney. And today in, in the city, there's a site of reclaimed land on the southern shores of the harbour that has been named after her. And so Barangaroo is really the ancestral guide for this body of work made by Brenda. Uh, She is the woman that these next generations of First Nations women look to for her guidance and her power and her authority and dignity. And one of the things, of course, that's crucial about Barangaroo is that she resisted the colonisers to a certain degree, that she had seen her family, people around her dying of diseases brought with the European colonisers like smallpox. And her sort of fame is about about the extraordinary reaction to them and, and her uncompromising reaction to them, right? Yeah, and she was fierce, you know. She was seen to often be having arguments with Benelong who, who wanted her to be you know, less frustrated or, or, or difficult with the colonisers and she's known to have stood her ground and to have had this very strong attitude against what was happening at that time in Sydney Harbour. Absolutely. So tell us about the photographs then, because it's multi-generational, this project, isn't it? It's not just a particular demographic. It's across generations. It's the young and the old. It's, it seems to me extraordinary. And they're all pictured with this incredible focus and incredible close-up, and they meet you right in the eyes, don't they? Yeah, it's amazing. The 45 images of women at the art gallery, the age ranges from about three years old to 80-plus years old. And there are some relationships with women here that Brenda has known since she was a kid, and then others that are her contemporaries, and then her own nieces, and then kids of her contemporaries. So there's this incredible range of women who have very diverse backgrounds, but in some way or another are associated with Sydney, New South Wales, or or Canberra and those regions. And it's quite an epic feat that Brenda was able to bring all of these women together to undertake this project because the process in itself is very labour intensive. There's a kind of fugitive nature around it. And so just the logistics of of bringing these people together, especially during COVID pandemic and, and lockdown, is pretty extraordinary. And how are they presented at the museum? Because obviously in the public project, they were on metal and it was quite dramatic, that presentation. Have you continued that? No, it's quite different, actually, and that's very important. They're beautifully printed onto paper and they're deliberately unframed. There's no reflection. And the printing is the the very kind of black, velvety blacks of the printing process, and they're individually pinned to the wall. So there's no frames. It's this very kind of exposed, I suppose, way of presenting the work, and they're bathed in natural light. So there's a large skylight over the wall that they sit on. So there's sort of nowhere for the work to hide and nowhere that the visitor can go. (laughs) It must be quite an extraordinary experience being surrounded by these women. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful and it's incredibly kind of moving, I think. We started actually installing them today and we have about a third of the body of work up and already it almost takes your breath away when you walk into the space. 
you know, the facade and the old wing of, of the gallery were built between about 1896 and 1909 or around about the same time or a bit later than when these processes were being used. And architecturally, the building really reflects those 19th century ideas around the cultural role of a gallery as a temple to art and so on. And to see these beautiful, dignified, strong women's faces in the grand courts, in the central courts, when you're walking into the gallery is really powerful. So tell us about how... In a way, this is a kind of an emblematic work for the National Four. You're one of several curators. And it seems to me it really taps into many of the themes that are consistent with this very large exhibition with 80 artists. Yeah, it's a really large exhibition, um, the National Four. It's a biennial survey of contemporary Australian art held in in Sydney over four major cultural institutions this year. This is the fourth iteration and I'm curating the exhibition for the Art Gallery of New South Wales this year. And... I guess there are a few thematics that cross over our our exhibitions. You know, there's layering of voices and, and perspectives, and they really, you know, reflect, I think, the cultural diversity and complexity of this country and um, also underpin the important role that our cultural spaces have in presenting alternative viewpoints. There's a number of moments, I think, within the show across the venues that reveal an opportunity for art to kind of rupture and transgress our expectations as well and to dive into the complexities of of representation in the 21st century. And I think really importantly and sort of fundamental to me definitely, it's it's a real celebration of contemporary Australian art and it's a moment to sort of saturate these spaces with an abundance of really great work that's being made by practitioners who are associated with these places, with this country. And just to return finally to Brenda's lifelong project, if you like, it's really notable, I think, that even when you visit the websites of Australian museums and galleries now, there is an acknowledgement of ancestral lands and so on. Uh, it does feel like the Australian art world, Australian museum world is in a different place to way back then. And, and of course, Brenda is instrumental in making that happen. Yeah, it really is. It's really a changing landscape and it's being led by new generations of First Nations curators who are coming through and helping to share this knowledge and it was really people like Brenda um, who were responsible as First Nations people coming into our institutions and changing the way that the work is presented, the way that the work is spoken about, the way that language and country are also referred to in very complex conversations. But in a way, it's so crucial that it's our museum and gallery and civic spaces that occupy this space and allow these conversations to take place. Beatrice, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The National Four Australian Art Now continues until the 23rd of July. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Judy Michalska and David Clack. David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Gareth, Amy, Emma and Elizabeth and Beatrice. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.